Go ahead and have a seat. Would you take your Bible with me and turn to uh, the Gospel of John this morning? The Gospel of John, we're uh, going to look at the very last verse in the prologue of John's Gospel. If you don't have a copy of, of God's Word, there is a, there are a handful of Bibles back there. Feel free to pick one up and to, to take a look this morning. Uh, it's important for you to see the words in front of you. And we're just going to look at this one verse, verse 18 this morning. And in the past, I've spent time reading through the entire prologue, but I'm actually going to, um, I'm actually just going to read this one verse this morning for the sake of, sake of time. But I would encourage you this week to spend time in John's gospel, even as Mark mentioned earlier that this week or next Sunday is going to kick off Advent for us. Um, I uh, spent some time in John 1, 1 through 18. This is a passage of scripture that oftentimes gets neglected at Advent, but is equally as important to our understanding of why Jesus came to earth the first time and actually gives us some critical information about why he's coming again. But first, uh, spend some time here in John 1, 1 through 18. But again, for this morning's purposes, I'm just going to read verse 18. And I said all of that, and I probably could have just read the whole thing in the same amount of time, but whatever. Sorry. Here we go. John 1, 1, chapter 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Again, this verse rounds out John's prologue in his gospel, and it wraps things up, and what it does is it actually ties things back up to the top of, of the prologue in verses 1 and 2, where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this reminds us of several important truths that we need to have in our mind's eye as we approach this text. The first just simply being that Jesus Christ is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning. He, Jesus Christ, is eternal. And then because he is eternal, he has had perfect fellowship with, with, uh, with God the Father in the past uh, for eternity. So in eternity past, Jesus Christ has had perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian understanding there. And then the last thing we learn right there in verse 1 is, and the word was God. Jesus Christ is God. And these are vital understandings, and they're going to carry us through our time in John's gospel together. But in those three ideas lay the groundwork for verse 18. Back in August, a member of Buffalo City Church, Kelly Bauer, she wrote an article for us. You can find that article. It was in the weekly email. It's on the website now, and we'll make it available to you so that you can look at it. But she, she wrote an article uh, titled, What is the Bible? And if you didn't have a chance to read it, the article begins by referencing a popular song from the 90s, Christian song by a band called Burlap to Cashmere. I'm taking her word for it because I don't know this band. Um, but... Uh, but, uh, but in Kelly's article, she unpacks this for us. And one of the songs that Burlap to Cashmere had was called Basic Instructions, in which they take the word Bible and turn it into a nifty little acrostic that stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Um, Kelly actually writes, though, this is helpful for us. Maybe it was the catchy tune, the easy-to-remember lyrics, or the fond memories I have listening to the song, but... I often think of those words when considering the Bible's purpose. It wasn't until recently, after gaining a better understanding of the story of Scripture as a whole, that I realized burlap to cashmere's definition of the Bible is deeply lacking. The Bible is so much more than an instruction manual. 
Kelly's right to say it's deeply lacking. Basic instructions before leaving earth is a, a, a terrible definition if you're trying to get everything in. Because what do you do with an instruction manual? You pull it out when you need better help understanding something that, uh, that you own, like a product, like your blender. You're like, how do I, I want to crush it and not, not puree it? And then you pull out the instruction manual. Um, my vehicles have owner's manuals. Sometimes I pull them out of the glove box to get a better understanding of a problem that I'm having with my vehicle, but I inevitably always toss it back in because I can't find what I'm looking for and I just wind up Googling it anyways, right? So the, the reality though is I think for many Christians, and maybe this is the case for you too, this is the way that you approach your Bible, basic instructions, and you're looking for something to make your life better. You're looking for something to help you with a problem that you're having, but this is not the way that the Bible is designed. In John chapter 1, verse 18, uh, we learn so much more in all of these verses leading up to John chapter 1, verse 18, we learn so much more about the Bible's purpose. Why do we have the word of God? And in John chapter 1, verse 18, we find out that God's word took on flesh in order that, look at the end of the verse, he has made him known. The he referring to the only God who is at the Father's right side, who is Jesus Christ, who is the word of God who took on flesh. So, he has made God the Father known. This is interesting because when we use the word know, we use it in a couple of different senses. Uh, we, know, we talk about knowing something or someone as a, a sort of a big swath of information, right? So you know who the president is, right? You know what he looks like. You know who his wife and kids are. You know how he talks and how he walks. You get the picture. But you don't know the president. You don't know him. I don't know. Maybe you do. I don't think anyone in this room knows the president. But if he called you tomorrow and invited you to spend a day with him, then you would say that you know the president a little bit, right? You're like, I know the president and, and kind of his movements from firsthand experience, not just based on reports about him. But until that happens, you only know about him. You don't actually know him. J.I. Packer wrote a really important book called Knowing God. This book was really helpful in my uh, early Christian life, and if you don't have a copy of it, I would encourage you to get one, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He helps us understand what it means to what, know God. Packer argues that, again, we're not just to know about God, like a list of facts or bullet points or, or, or a, a bunch of data on a page. We're not to treat the Bible as an informational packet on God. It gives us information, but it doesn't stop there. Rather, we are to know God through the Bible. In the way that you are to sit down with your spouse or someone who you have an intimate relationship with and talk with them. You learn about your spouse by spending quality time with your spouse. And so when you go to the Bible, you're not just going to an instruction manual. You're engaging with what's true about God, not only informationally, but relationally. God is inviting you into his presence 
and says, know me. Jeremiah 9.24 says this, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. This is what we are supposed to brag about as people. We're, actually, we're not supposed to brag about our abilities, but we are supposed to boast about the fact that we know God and are able to know him. The God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. And who never wavers off of those things. Before we move on, though, and actually think about the verse and break it down a little bit, I want to think about just how culturally insane verse 18 is. And really kind of the whole prologue, but verse 18 in particular. Think about our culture and think about men and women who don't profess Christ that you spend time with regularly. Maybe at your job or it's your neighbor or just a family member or a friend. Our society is a pluralistic society and that means that our society views the God of the Bible, the one true and living God, as one option among many options. So it's commonly said in our culture. I'm as Christians, we would say there's only one way to have eternal life. And uh, in a pluralistic society, they say, no, 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 there's multiple ways. Now, that, that's not what the Bible teaches, but that's what our culture teaches, is that there are many ways to, to get to God. In our society, secular humanism seems to be more the religion of the state than anything else. We've stripped God out of nearly everything in our lives, except for this space on Sunday morning, if you're a Christian. And so it's culturally insane for us to say that God is knowable. First of all, that God exists, that's cultural insanity. But then also that God is knowable. For a religion like Islam, God is omnipresent, but he's not knowable. You can't actually know God in an intimate relationship, or in any relationship for that matter. But God is knowable, and relationship with him, what we learn in this verse, is that relationship with him comes through a guy who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, the very word of God who took on flesh. Again, that seems like cultural insanity to us. To the first century Jew who was probably reading this gospel, who would have been John's primary audience, uh, this would have also seemed culturally insane. We'll break that down in a second. Because they were waiting for a Messiah, but they didn't think the Messiah would actually be God himself. And to say that the Messiah was God himself is insanity. The idea that individual could know God in the way that John was talking about in verse 18 would be ludicrous to the first century Jew. And then even more unthinkable to the first century Gentile, the non-Jew. And so this is the message, though, that John is communicating in these first 18 verses and will carry through the entirety of his gospel and the message that the apostles were taking to, to the world as they were sent out by Jesus. So let's consider this, but I want you to keep that in the back of your head. Keep in the back of your mind that this verse doesn't actually compute both for us and both for the first century readers. 
maybe for different reasons, but culturally, it is not acceptable to say that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Not culturally acceptable. So, we have to think about a response, and we'll think about a response at the end of our time. But first, consider the verse itself. If you're reading the ESV like I am, the Bibles in the back are the English Standard Version. If you're reading the ESV, you see a semicolon after uh, no one has seen God. Now, first century reader, look at that phrase, no one has seen God, no problems here. Okay? No problems with this. And so the question is, why does John start out by saying that no one has seen God? He's laying a foundation, but what he's actually saying here is that no one has seen God. It's that simple. Again, pretty standard for the first century reader, no one has seen God. In the scripture reading this morning that Mark read, Exodus chapter 33, Moses asks to see God's glory. And what does God do? He puts his hand over the rock. After he goes in the cleft, Moses goes in the cleft of the rock. God puts his hand over Moses. And then all Moses gets to see is God passing by the, the backside. He doesn't get to see anything of substance. And yet, and yet he glows like Mark said. But God said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see my face and live. That's what God says. You can't, you're going to, you, you'd be consumed if you, if you saw me. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has a similar encounter with God, uh, recorded right at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 6 in verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Isaiah says that he sees the Lord, but what we learn right at the beginning of that text and what's maintained interpretively is that Isaiah only gets a glimpse of the train of God's robe. And probably even more properly translated, not the train, but just the hem. He just sees the hem of God's robe and he cries out that he is about to be ruined or lost. He's about to be consumed. I, I can't imagine seeing the hem of someone's pants and, and thinking that way. I can't. I can't. I can't think that way. And he says he's about to be consumed because, why? Because he is sinful. Because he is a man of unclean lips and dwells in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Jesus says it very clearly. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so his unclean lips are, his lips and the people's lips are polluted because of the sin that is in their hearts. And because of that sin and because of God's perfect holiness and because of his immaculate glory, he will not endure seeing God. This is meant to communicate that to see more of God would be disastrous for us. It's not uncommon to stumble across some 
some ridiculous imagery of God in a comic strip or some painting or something like that, where God is portrayed as sort of this old man with a white beard, Gandalf-looking sky wizard, floating on a cloud, doing something weird. These images, while sometimes they seem funny, are not funny or helpful. They're degrading to our view of God. Because the way that the Bible talks about God is Exodus chapter 33. It says, I'm going to put my hand over you because you're going to get consumed if you actually see me. And then, or consider Isaiah 6, and just the hem of God's robe is enough to ruin a man. You and I are not able to look at God. We can't look at him because of his immaculate glory and because of his perfect holiness. Is this the God that we worship? Like Isaiah, we're sinful and would be utterly ruined if we were to look upon God. So the question is, why does John call our attention to the fact that no one can see or no one has seen ever, ever seen God? Because he wants to set up this contrast in the second half, after the semicolon, the only God, this is Jesus he's referring to, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. If God cannot be seen, how can he be known? And this is a question that would commonly arise because of first century Jewish thought. If God cannot be seen, how can he be known? And the answer is simple. John's answer in the Gospel of John is this. He can be known through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, we've learned this so far in the prologue, Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He is God's sovereign self-expression. We do not see Jesus at this moment physically here, but he is present with us because he has given us his spirit and it shines a light on his word for us. Again, this seems like cultural insanity. You ha- please set this up against the culture standards and view how this verse is to be taken. There are cultural forces in our world right now at work. Consider the way that the pandemic has shaken our world. Have you ever seen coronavirus? I'm not, I'm not making any statements about the reality of anything. But what I am saying is that, sure, you can look up a, a, a picture that was taken with a microscope, The answer is probably no one in this room has actually put their eyes on that microscope. Maybe you have. But how do we know what we know about a virus? We're relying on men and women who are studying it. We're relying on new sources, new sources to report the use, to to use the, the, the findings of these studies. And we're relying on medical professionals and government organizations to prescribe to us what we should and shouldn't do as a result. 
When you go to the Bible, I think oftentimes we see like all these degrees of separation and we think to ourselves, well, this was written a long time ago by these guys a long time ago. But what the Bible tells us about it is that we have something far better here. Scientific studies are done by scientists. They report on their findings and the opinions of men and women and how to apply all of the data. This is very, very different than what we have in our Bible. Because when you go to your Bible, you have the very word of God. The same word that took on human flesh. Who came to earth to die in order that your sin might be forgiven. Who was raised and who gave you his Holy Spirit in order that we can go and read the Bible and understand it and apply it. Every time you read your Bible as a Christian, you are encountering Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is making God known to you through God's word. The God that you cannot see because his holiness would consume you, not just because he's invisible, but because you would die. Jesus Christ grants you access to knowing this God. When you go to the Bible, you don't have a loosely tied together document, ancient, outdated, irrelevant, written by men. That's not what the Bible is. At least that's not what the Bible says it is. And if you care to make anything about your life or care to use this Bible as as a way in which to understand the world around you and you reject that notion, I don't know what you're doing. Because the Bible says very clearly, it is the word of God. This is the word of God given to us through the person of Jesus Christ who calls us to ultimately know the one who we cannot see, who dwells in perfect holiness and immaculate perfection. Every Christian is given the great privilege of knowing God. We're not just thumbing through news sources and getting people's opinions on who God is. We're getting God's word authoritatively spoken to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We're not just getting fun facts or data points. God gives us his word through Jesus Christ. God is ultimately knowable. So the question is, what does this mean? Verse 18, what does it mean for us? And I think there's a ton of things, but I'm going to give you one thing this morning. Knowing God is culturally insane. We said that because we live in this secular humanistic society that says the highest good is the the individual. And when that happens, we push God out of every sphere of our lives. And so we're constantly being washed over with a tsunami of cultural forces that are telling you to live in a godless way. To live as if God didn't exist. And for many of us, even in this room, we spend the majority of our week living in ways that, or like, God doesn't exist. And so to resist this cultural tsunami to resist all of this messaging that's coming to us about the fact that God doesn't exist, we must do one thing, and that is to know God through His Word. 
This is actually a call to resist all of the commercials that you're going to see during the Vikings-Cowboys game later today. This is actually a call to resist all of the messaging that comes to you that says you will be more satisfied and more fulfilled if you purchase this vehicle or take this supplement or you what have you. Just pick a thing. So the point is this, we must start resisting the tsunami of cultural forces. And I want to give you very clearly a scenario that I hope will help you define this. Because through Jesus Christ, you have access to God. Jesus, Jesus Christ gives you access to God, who is the creator of all things, who is the sustainer of all things, the one to whom all things belong, the one who is set apart entirely. Three, through Jesus Christ, you can know God. And so the question is, if through Jesus Christ you can know God, you've been equipped through his Holy Spirit to understand his word, then his word stands before you today, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to go to your Bible? Why is it so hard to spend time in God's word with regularity? Friends, the answer is simply because we don't believe what's written in John chapter 1, verse 18. We don't believe that the God who is holy and cannot be approached by sinful creatures like us in this room is knowable through the person of Jesus Christ. We don't believe that, and so we just leave it on the shelf, or we open it up and say, I don't know what that means, and then we walk away from it and, and just allow the cultural forces to wash over us and direct us in godless ways. Why do we struggle to go to our Bibles? Because we don't believe John 1.18. Again, these cultural forces are washing over us like a tsunami. Because if I sit down this afternoon and watch Vikings Cowboys, I'm going to spend four to five times as much time watching that nonsense and with the commercials and everything that is completely and utterly godless wash over me for four to five times as much time as it will take for me to deliver this sermon this morning. Our culture at best thinks God of the Bible is an option among many, and at worst, that God is a total delusion. Everything that our culture is feeding us is godless. Men, consider with me for a moment. You're under fire, and that means your family is under fire. This is not a passive thing. It's intentional. It's sinister. It's satanic. It's a it's, it's targeting us as men. Because what we're told as men is that our primary worth is found in our work. And this may not be true for you, but hear, hear me out. We're told consistently as men that our primary our primary worth is found in our work. And I struggle with this as much as anyone in this room not necessarily because there's always outside forces pressuring me, but because internally I struggle to, to be defined by the work that I do. Our culture tells men that they aren't, if, if we're not grinding it out in the office, if we're not grinding it out on the job site, then we aren't providing, and that's what defines manhood. These men are so burned out when we find our worth in our work. They're so burned out from their work that all they want to do is come home and sit on the couch, which is exactly what the culture tells you that you should be doing. 
consuming sports on television or watching whatever or just staring at your smartphone screen. You don't have time for your, your family. And these men, their wives are fed up because their husband is absent. As if they're thinking about preparing a, a meal for their kids and making sure that their kids get their homework done, all where their husband sits down and, and punches out mentally. She's already spent most of the day with the kids or at her own job. And then she, in a culture that makes this easy, flirts with the idea of divorce. Said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to go about this anymore. And, and society has lowered the bar so far on something like divorce that it's an easy thought to have. If my husband just supported me more, if he didn't buy into the narrative that the best that he can do in the home is sit down and stare at a smartphone screen. She's raising boys who are meant to be identifying with their fathers, but their fathers are too busy being consumed with their own self-worth that's found in their work and their hobbies and their entertainment. And these boys aren't growing up to be men. They're being trained to be irresponsible and effeminate because their dads, even though they're physically present and mentally in a different world and have the spiritual depth of a kiddie pool. These boys are devastated by their father's criticism because he snaps at them when they interrupt a football game. And sure, these boys know how to handle a gun or go camping, but when they watch their dad push back from the table for the fifth time in the week to answer a work email, their little minds and their little hearts are being formed. They're being told what's important. I know that when a dad comes home and complains to, to mom for 45 minutes about work, the idolatry of career is being erected in son's hearts. Well, the mentality that we should have everything the way that we want it all the time without difficulty. This is what our complaining communicates to our children. And we're shocked at a generation of men who don't know how to take responsibility. And we live in fear rather than offer real protection to our families. We have no real sense of anything outside of the physical and material world. And that's all we can offer our families. We're overwhelmed as men by depression and anxiety because our team never wins a Super Bowl. Thanks, Vikings. Our things go south in the workplace or the weather doesn't cooperate for the hunting trip. We can't separate our manhood from these things. And even if we care about the title man at all. In ancient Rome, the way society was kept humming along, this is the way that they communicated it, about 55 AD this was written. They said the way that society is kept humming along was by making sure people had Bread and circuses, food and entertainment, stomachs filled, and, and things to watch on the TV. When this observation was made, within a decade, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Peter was crucified, and the Apostle Paul was beheaded. Why? Because that wasn't, that wasn't what Christ called them to. He called them to defined manhood. He called them to stand up and to follow Jesus in a radically resistant way. Not just to accept the bread and circuses and lay down for them, but to stand up and to oppose them and to say Jesus calls us into something far deeper 
than what the cultural forces are washing over us or attempting to wash over us. Paul would write to the church in Rome, Romans 12 too. This is a verse that we talk about all the time. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Men and women, if you're in Christ, it's your duty to stand up and resist these things, to not just let them wash over you passively, but to be men and women who look at those things and say, they are seeking to conform me to this world. But what I need to be is transformed by the renewal of my mind. And the only way to be transformed by the renewal of your mind is what's found in John chapter 1, verse 18, when John says, the way to know Jesus Christ, or the way to know God is through the person of Jesus Christ. And so the key to not being run over by cultural forces is found in this verse. You can know God, and you can know him through Jesus Christ. Cultural insanity, but absolutely essential to the core of Christianity. Jesus came and makes God knowable so that you won't be conformed to this world. Jesus came and made God knowable so that you might be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is not some ethereal thought. It is literally as practical as sitting down this week and opening your Bible and reading it. Do we believe John 1.18? I think if we did, we wouldn't be so quick to negotiate away because God is knowable. And even though we can't see him because we would be utterly consumed by it, Jesus Christ has made him known. The hurdle here is our unbelief. Unbelief that's fueled by a society that tells you that God and his word are irrelevant to actually address the problems that you are facing. And the unbelief is fueled by a society that tells you your real satisfaction is only found in the temporary and the material. But God's word isn't irrelevant to address the problems you're facing. The biggest issue that we face in our world is sin. Friends, it is sin. Pandemics and political division are a result of sin. The fear you feel in your heart is a result of sin. We don't want to know God. We don't want to know God in our own sinful state. We don't want to know God. We want to be God. And that's sin against God. But the good news here is that Jesus Christ came. And the Jesus Christ that is shown to us and defined so clearly in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, came to earth. The word of God took on flesh to dwell among the ones that he created as the agency of all creation. And he died for the forgiveness of sins. And then he rose again to defeat the death that comes as a result of sin. If you know that your sin is paid for, and that is the thing that is keeping you from spending eternity with God, your creator, what do you have to worry about? If you know that you're, the death that comes as a result of the sin, that that so easily entangles you in your day-to-day, 
is defeated because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, what do you have to worry about? When you find yourself firmly in Christ, you can be satisfied that God has given you the ability, all of the resources and tools, to do the very thing that John chapter 1, verse 18 tells us about, to know God. Let's pray.